but I'm going to pray and I feel I need God's help. I think we all do. Would you join me? Father God, we thank you for your word. Uh, Even in this familiar story, we pray you'd help us to see something fresh and new, that you might touch our hearts and minds with who you are, Heavenly Father, your grace and compassion. Lord, we pray that by your spirit you'd empower me to preach powerfully and for the good of your people, for the glory of Jesus. And by your spirit, we pray you'd work in all of our hearts and minds, that you'd plant your word in us. You'd help us to see how you want us to respond. And that by your spirit, again, you might give us grace indeed to respond. And in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, nearly, I'll be married 20 years uh, this June. And nearly 20 years ago, my wife Kirstie and I got a little dog called Ewok. We thought she looked like an Ewok if you've seen Star Wars Return of the Jedi. We actually went looking for a dog that looked like an Ewok and we found her. Uh, We had her for 12 years. She's no longer with us and we miss her. We've now got a stubborn beagle cross and a crazy chihuahua that barks too much for me. But I found out about another Shih Tzu called Ewok from Vancouver, Canada. And in 1994, that Ewok one day just disappeared without a trace. The owner, Barbara, said he was gone. We didn't know if he was hit by a car or or what happened. And then seven years later, in 2001, Ewok simply wandered back into town. He showed up after being away and lost for seven years. Barbara might have said, this dog of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. In our parable today, Jesus tells of a father whose lost son comes home and the father says, this son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that can be our experience too. Tim Keller has written a really helpful book on the parable, The Prodigal God. He says, really, the father extends grace to two lost sons, two sons who were distant from their father. This parable tells us how our heavenly father celebrates when lost sinners are found, when they turn back to him and find life. Luke chapter 15 begins, I hope you've got your Bible open here, with all the tax collectors and sinners approaching Jesus to listen to him. But the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they complain, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And in response, Jesus shares three connected parables, stories, and the first two finish with there being great joy in heaven, even over one sinner who repents. We read that in verse 7 and verse 10. And then the parable of the lost or the prodigal son begins in verse 11 with this man who had two sons. We're going to look at each of these three main characters in turn, beginning with the younger son from verse 11. This younger son, he says, Father, give me the share of the estate that's coming to me. Now, like today, normally you would have to wait until your parents die before you get your inheritance. And asking for it early, it would be frowned upon. But really, it is like this son is saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. And to say that in their culture, 
was far worse than it would be for me to say that in my Western Anglo culture. I mean, respect for parents was hugely important. And normally a son would work in the family business, but but this son doesn't want his share of the land so he can work it. He wants it sold so he can take the money and leave. And he leaves, verse 13, taking all he had. means he's not coming back. He wants his father's money. He, He wants his father's stuff, but not him. His rebellion is also seen in him leaving to a distant country, you know, getting as far as he can from his family and his father. This person is rejecting his father, his family, all responsibility. He's being selfish. He's being ungrateful. He's being offensive. And where he's free from all control and restrictions, he squanders his inheritance, he spends it quickly, he loses it all. And that's what the word prodigal means. It means wasteful, recklessly extravagant, spending everything. And we can assume that he indulges his senses to the full. We don't know what exactly, but spending it on entertainment and things that don't last. I had a young person who was really close to me, rebel against his parents and go off the rails, so to speak. He didn't walk out on his family, though I know some do, but he rejected his parents' instruction, their expectations, their morals. He did his own thing, decided to live his life his own way, and he wasted his money on drink and partying and other things I don't know about, I'm sure. But he was a bit like the younger son, who in verse 14, after burning up the inheritance, experiences things going bad in a famine. So picture rising prices, unemployment, a lot of people not having enough to eat. Food is scarce. So he, like with others, is in need, is left with nothing, and this man is desperate. And his need is so great that this Jewish man went and fed pigs. Complete desperation. I mean, to a Jew, that was defiling, it's degrading, it's offensive. And he's so hungry, we're told in verse 17, he's dying of hunger. He wanted to eat the pig's food. I mean, that's telling us that he was envious of these unclean animals. But he came to his senses, realizing his father's hired men were better off, and he decides to go back to his dad and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. What's happening here is that this it means that this man decides to repent to turn back, to go back in the the opposite direction, back to his father, back home. He admits his sins against God and against his father. And he knows, doesn't he, that after taking significant money from his father and family, just walking out on them, he's not worthy to be called a son. But But this son, this man, he doesn't just think about repenting or plan to repent. He does it. 
Verse 20, he got up and went to his father. You see, when it comes to repentance, good intentions, plans, words, they're not enough. Only actions count. I've known too many people who feel bad about their pornography or sad that they've been caught. Or they feel sad that their sin, whatever it is, has been found out. I've known too many angry, controlling husbands who are sad that they're they're suffering the consequences of their choices, but they don't actually grieve that they've sinned against their wives or against their God. I know too many people who hurt another and they say sorry, but it's a fake apology and nothing changes. They don't repent. And I'm guilty of saying sorry, but inwardly thinking that my actions were justified. All this reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, which says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So really what this is saying is too many people feel sorry to suffer the consequences of their sinful choices, but but it's not godly sorrow. There's no humbly turning back to God, no repentance, no change, no stopping the sin. And so what sort of sorrow have you been showing over your sin lately? Godly or worldly? Have you grieved for the sin that you commit against your heavenly father? Or excuse it and think it's not that bad. Will you really repent of it? Not just say sorry and let them be empty words. This younger son represents the immoral person, the, the marginalized, marginalized person, the openly rebellious people. In Jesus' day, that was the tax collector and the prostitute. Maybe t- for us today, the sinner is the gang member, the drug addict, the rapist, the terrorist, the pedophile. And maybe that's not you, maybe that... One of those words doesn't describe you, but maybe you're still rejecting God's authority and rule over your life. Maybe you're loving independence. Maybe you've moved out of home recently and you're loving independence from your parents. You can do what you want, when you want it, how you want it. Maybe you're living a life where, honestly, you're just following your desires. You're living for short-term pleasures, for things that money can buy, even if you're a student and don't have much. Spend it on what you can and what you want. Maybe, honestly, you're wasting your life. And if that's you, then please, like this young man, turn back to God, to your heavenly Father. Yet whoever the immoral are in our day, this son also represents the the sin that resides and lives in every human heart. Mine, yours, And this son returns to his father. He acknowledges his sin. He seeks mercy. And we need to do that too. Or else 
We'll lose everything and even for eternity. Next from verse 20, we focus on the father. Amazingly, I think it's like the father's been on the lookout, waiting, longing for, praying for his son's return. And the younger son, do you notice that he's seen coming? And the father, as you probably heard before, Bible studies or sermons, that the father publicly dishonors himself by running. I mean, back then, children would run, yes. Women might run, young men might run, but not middle-aged or older Eastern men, not patriarchs. And yet this father does. He runs and he hugs and he kisses his son. It's the warmest reunion. And, And verse 20 tells us that it's because he was filled with compassion. So the father doesn't say, I knew this would happen. You got your share of the inheritance. Expect nothing more from me. He doesn't say, son, you must deal with the consequences of your actions. No, the father, overjoyed, embraces his son, welcomes him. And the younger son begins his prepared speech, but it seems that the father stops him short with this call for the ring and the robe and the sandals. I mean, they're emblems of an honourable restoration. An honourable restoration to the family he'd snubbed, dissed, ghosted. The father doesn't listen to his call to abandon his sonship, but he instead calls for a feast and for the fattened calf to be killed. And that was reserved for the most special of occasions. And the father celebrates because this, I must have missed a slide, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Famous words. And so this gives us a a picture of the love of God, doesn't it? The love of God the Father and God the Son for a world of lost sinners like us. And we'll remember this, the love of God for us displayed in the cross symbolized for us in the supper. But it especially gives us a picture of God's love for all who turn to him. This parable is teaching us about God's love for all who turn to him and come home to him. So yes, the father in the story represents God and God is so willing to receive all who turn back to him in faith. Some writers, they suggest that the father not going out for and searching for his lost son shows neglect. And if you're tempted to think that, I think that's where the context of the first two parables is so important. They emphasize the the seeking love of God who initiates the search for the lost. And our Heavenly Father sends his Son to seek out the lost. And I can say that God did that for that young person I mentioned earlier who went off the rails. God searched for him, found him saved him. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. 
In the words of one writer, even before we begin to think about God, we learn that he's always been thinking about us. In returning to him, we discover that he's already begun the journey to meet us. In confessing our sinfulness, he covers us with his love, forgiveness, generosity through Jesus. God shows abundant love and compassion to all who turn back to him. And so there's no evil that a father's love cannot pardon. There's no sin that is a match for his grace. Keller, Tim Keller calls his book Prodigal God because God is so recklessly extravagant with his grace. And for all of us who've been saved by Christ, it, Christ, isn't that our experience? Receivers of God's extravagant grace poured out to us. It just wasn't deserved at all. And if you think about that, doesn't it fill you with joy and thankfulness and stir your heart and make you want to live for him? From verse 25, the focus is on the older son. Too many children's Bibles, I've read them, finish the story at verse 24 and it misses some really important truths and applications, not least for the Pharisees, particularly applying it to him now, who he's been telling this parable for. So the older son comes home at the end of the day's work. He hears music and dancing and it's a party thrown for his long-lost brother and the older brother's happy to see him, isn't he? No. Verse 28, he became angry and didn't want to go inside. In that culture, the refusal to enter the home and join the meal was an act with gargantuan proportions. It was huge. Just like it was huge for Jesus to sit with and eat with sinners at a meal. Please notice that in love, the father goes out to his older son to plead with him to come into the home and join the banquet. He sees the father is seeking restoration. But that just initiates this outburst of pent-up resentment at the father and his brother. And this older son, he boasts of his obedience while claiming to have been living in slavery. I wonder if you can see the irony here. The son who hired himself out to the pig farmer literally glued himself to the owner of the pigs, really, we may say, enslaved himself to the pig farmer. He, that one who had enslaved himself, is welcomed home as a son. And the older brother, who's always been a son, says he's a slave. And that older son thought the father owed him and hadn't given him what he deserved. And I wonder, Christian, if you feel that you've slaved for God for years. Or in that ministry at church this year, you're slaving for God. And maybe something goes wrong in your life. Or your hardship continues. Or someone else is blessed in a way that you aren't, I don't know, a healing, an engagement, and you just feel that you haven't got what you deserved. 
Well, the resentment can eat away at you inside until it comes bursting out too. Like here in verse 29. The son says, look. It's equivalent to saying, look you. You never gave me even a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Can you picture it? Try and imagine the conversation. My rebellious, selfish brother who disappointed you, shamed you, sinfully squandered your money, gets this gourmet 10-course Chinese banquet and I get not even a pizza. And he disrespectfully refers to his father as you. And his younger brother is your son as if, there was, as if the father's responsible for what his younger brother did. And yet how does, his, how does his dad respond? My son, you're always with me. You've always had access to my presence. He'd not recognized his father's constant recognition while the younger son came to discover that the joy of a father's love even at great cost. Nor had the older son appreciated the privileges. Everything I have is yours. It doesn't have to be shared with his younger brother anymore, who's lost his inheritance. This older son stands for the Pharisees who grumble at Jesus, welcoming, welcoming sinners. He also represents the Pharisees of today, May I suggest that that's the nice people, the religious people. Maybe it's often the eldest child. I'm an eldest child. I've got three younger brothers. And I've seen in my heart the attitude of the older brother here. Maybe you could call it eldest child syndrome. For often we're not openly rebellious. No, often the eldest child, we're responsible. We work hard. We do what's right. And whether you say it or not, we're proud of it. It's so easy to look down on others. We pride ourselves on being like this. And I felt pride at my efforts before, and I've looked down on others And following on from that, we can think that if we live a good life, if I'm a good person, then I should get a good life. And then if our goodness doesn't pay off, then we can get angry and bitter. And so our sin, the older brother's sin, it can be more hidden and and inward, but it's sin just the same. The sad reality is the older brother type people often don't know that they're alienated from God because they think they're not bad and they're good enough. We're good enough. And so you see, we're all like the older or the younger son. We all disobey and rebel against God and that may be seen in open immorality and disrespect. Or it may be seen in resentments and pride and self-righteousness. So which son are you more like? Which child are you more like? How does the parable finish? The older son who'd 
always had access to his father and his gifts, seems like at this point he's rejecting them because he refused to go into the home and be part of the family that now included his younger brother. And so by verse 31, the younger son who was on the outside has repented and been welcomed into the banquets. That symbolizes being welcomed into God's family and the heavenly banquets. But did the older son repent and turn back to the father and join the banquets? We're not told. Remember, he's representing the majority of Pharisees in Jesus' day who exclude themselves from heaven. So we doubt that he went inside. Because self-righteousness and pride can be just as fatal as immorality and Prodigal extravagance, gross sin. How should we respond to this? Firstly, essentially by turning back to God. Have you turned back to the Father who made you and who loves you? Have you experienced what it is to go from spiritual death to life? from being lost to being found by God because you've found life. Because you've come to God, turned to God by trusting in Jesus, you've found meaning and purpose and fulfillment and joy. Joy in knowing that you're God's child. Has that been your experience? Have you been found by God and have you found life? Can you sing As we will at the end tonight, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Is that your story? Do you have a ticket to go to that heavenly banquet? Will you be there? There's only one who gets us there. The flawed older brother in the story makes us yearn for a true one. In Keller's words, we have the older brother that we need. One who came to search for us, came from heaven to earth for us and was willing to pay not just some money but the infinite cost of his own life to bring us into God's family. Forgiveness is always costly. Someone has to pay and our true older brother does pay. Jesus paid. He was stripped naked so that we could be clothed with a dignity we don't deserve. He was treated as an outcast so we could be welcomed and restored. And you and I will only be accepted if we've accepted his death on our behalf, the free gift of relationship with God that Christ gives And when you turn from sin and trust in him, you you will be forgiven. You will. You'll be welcomed into God's family and loved as a son or daughter. And yes, as we're told, heaven will rejoice. So come to God. Come Come home. Secondly and finally, the older son represents the person who isn't joyful at the salvation of other sinners. 
Such people often don't like to associate with those they think are unworthy. Great writer J.C. Ryle said this, This man, the older brother, is a type, that's a symbol, of the self-righteous, ignorant moralist who cannot bear the doctrine of salvation by grace or endure the idea that great sinners can be completely pardoned and put on a level with himself. The prophet Jonah came to my mind. Remember how Jonah eventually, after being spewed out of the big fish, he eventually went and preached to his enemies in Nineveh. And then how everyone in the city, even the king, repented. They grieved over their sin, the judgment that was coming, and they repented. And do you remember how Jonah responded to that? Chapter 4. He was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed, please, Lord, isn't this what I said when I was in my own country? That's why I fled to Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and bounding in faithful love, the one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah knew that God was gracious and compassionate, likely to forgive his enemies, and he was angry, so angry that he preferred to die than see them saved. I asked, does that anger you? When unworthy people who've lived selfish, terrible, wicked lives just get saved, accepted by God. Are you joyful when God saves the unworthy? Someone from that culture, someone from that family, that class, that rough background. Maybe more personally, it's that someone, someone from your family, that former friend who has sinned so much so horribly, so painfully to you, against you or your loved one that it would just make your gut turn to think that God could forgive them if they turned to Jesus. And deep down, you wouldn't be happy if that happened. The thing is, as we've seen, all of us have sinned. None of us deserve forgiveness. Maybe you need to turn the focus away from the badness of their sin and look in at your own heart. You see, if heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents, then so should we. I don't know what happened to my slides. That's not your fault, guys. If heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents, so should we. I was going to put up some pictures of people rejoicing, happy, celebrating, together, hugging, sharing food. Is that you? You rejoice even when terrible people repent and are saved. And if we don't, if we don't rejoice at that, if we won't, then, then we're the ones who need to repent. Just like you need to repent if you've become exclusive 
when it comes to who you talk to after church. Or if you become exclusive about who you let into your friendship circle or into your home. Because maybe you're too happy keeping certain people at a distance from you, just like the Pharisees were. And if you struggle with this, please pray for God's mercy and forgiveness, for grace to repent, for grace to grow more like your Father God. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 says, Be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. Let me just read Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. So do it because you're loved. And walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. So would you please pray that God would fill you with a love, the same love and compassion that he has for the lost and that he has for you. Let's seek and pray for people to come back to God and join his family. If God accepts sinners who turn to him, so should we. If God and the angels in heaven celebrate and rejoice when sinners come home or come to the, into the church, so should we. Show compassion, compassion by welcoming those who come or keep doing that, making 5 p.m. a a loving and welcoming, hospitable community. And also, can I encourage you to show compassion by sharing with your lost friend the best news about Jesus, who can bring them back into relationship with God and to that heavenly banquet, their true heavenly home. Our Father God celebrates when sinners turn to him and find life. He wants us to rejoice with him in that. Will you rejoice with him in that? Let's pray now that we will. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the compassion and mercy and grace you've shown us in Jesus. Thank you that for all who turn back to you in repentance and faith, Forgive us and welcome us. Humbling to think that there's rejoicing in heaven over that. We pray that you would so work by your spirit in our hearts that you would fill us with the fruit of the spirit and that love and grace and generosity and kindness would flow from our hearts to other unworthy people, different people, even to those uh, who've hurt us. God, we pray that you might make us more like yourself, more like our Saviour Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.